The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. It's 1,215 days since the Brexit referendum, and you're still watching Squawkbox, and these are your headlines. Sterling slips after the UK lawmakers delay a vote on Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, but the UK leader intends to try again as early as today in an effort to get his divorce agreement across the line. The EU receives a forced extension request from Boris Johnson, but the British government insists the country is leaving the bloc by the end of the month. And banks across Lebanon closed today after hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in four days of anti-government protests. The country's prime minister expected to submit a raft of economic reforms to his cabinet just hours from now. Experts at the IMF annual meetings raise concerns over negative rates. In an exclusive interview with CNBC, UBS chairman Axel Weber warns central banks have lost their way. In recent years, the ECB's you know, loss of distance has been much less with policy, it's, but it's lost its distance to market. The central banks should guide markets on where they're going rather than sort of be in a standoff with markets about the future. And we've seen that in the US, we've seen it here in, in Europe. We'll also hear from a whole host of other top policymakers at the IMF meeting in Washington, including both the Dutch and Irish finance ministers, the governor of the Bank of Italy and the president of Buffin. The question is whether it's Brexit endgame now as Sterling has dipped after British lawmakers voted to postpone a meaningful vote on Boris Johnson's new Brexit deal, forcing the UK Prime Minister to request a new delay to the October 31st deadline, 1.29 the handle we perched out. Well, Johnson sent an unsigned letter to the EU requesting an extension, but also sent another letter arguing against a further delay. The government is set to push for another vote on the deal as early as today. Well, as you can see, Steve is live for us from Westminster. Sylvia's in Brussels. Steve, out to you first. Just give us a sense of what happens from here because it felt as though Boris Johnson has been the man of the moment, but it might be John Burko today who everyone is watching at this point. And won't John Burko enjoy that moment, Karen, as well? Yes, the Speaker of the House, not uh, unfamiliar with the uh, the limelight uh, in, throughout this entire saga. 1,215 days. I just put it into a, a date calculator to work out how many days since the 23rd of June 2016. 1,215 days. And the question is, of course, uh, will we still go out on October 31st? Well, let's listen to the UK Prime Minister, who seems steadfast in saying we will. I will not negotiate a delay with the EU. And neither, and, and, and neither does the law compel me to do so. I will tell uh, our friends and colleagues in the EU exactly what I have told everyone in the last 88 days that I've served as Prime Minister, that further delay would be bad for this country, bad for, the, bad for our European Union and bad for democracy. So next week, the government will introduce the legislation needed for us to leave the EU with our new deal on October the 31st. 
Yeah, the Prime Minister was visibly irked by the Letwin Amendment, which was one of four things that happened uh, on Saturday. So let's look backwards and then we can look forward to what will happen this week as well, what we think might happen as well. First of all, we can't discount the fact that there was an absolutely enormous People's Vote second referendum march on the streets of London. The organisers said there were a million people looking for that as well uh, on that vote. Uh, others say several hundred thousand, but it was enormous whichever way you look at it as well. So huge public pressure on the Prime Minister to look at a second referendum, whatever is agreed with inside Parliament as well. Secondly, of course, the Prime Minister uh, could not persuade Sir Oliver Letwin, a former cabinet minister, uh, to withdraw his amendment. And in the end, that amendment passed 322 to 306, which said basically, yeah, we'll give you a meaningful vote, but we will only give you a meaningful vote once all the legislation has been implemented. And of course, that meant that there had to be the extension of Article 50 letter written because um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson could not get his deal over the line on the 19th of October, which was the date stipulated in the Ben Act. So the letter went, then another letter, then another letter. So there were three letters in total, actually. One was a cover letter uh, from the UK ambassador to the EU Council saying, well, this is the one we've been obliged to vote, this, uh, to send. The second was this unsigned photocopy that you mentioned, Karen. And the third letter was a letter from Boris Johnson saying, uh, I don't like this, it stinks, I've been asked to do this, I've done what I've been told, uh, but I believe it's bad for the EU and bad for the UK to have an extension. And then the fourth thing that happened is the thing that didn't happen, i.e. there was no meaningful vote. So the question is, uh, did the letter have legal substance? Well, Donald Tusk said, I received the letter. But what does John McDonnell think, the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, listening? He's also sent another letter, hasn't he, which seems to be, uh, well, actually, I think he may well be in contempt of Parliament or the courts themselves, because he's clearly trying to undermine the first letter. And not signing the letter... He's behaving a bit like a sport brat. Parliament made a decision. He should abide by it. And this idea that you send another letter contradicting the first, I think it flies in the face of what both Parliament and the courts have decided. So this week, having had this extraordinary not-so-super Saturday, what happens? Well, uh, just alluding to what John McDonnell said there, there is a Supreme Court of Scotland decision today about whether uh, there has been some form of contempt uh, from the UK Prime Minister as well. So it'll be interesting to see what the Scottish courts have to say. But as I say, Donald Tusk admitted that he had been sent the letter and it had been sent. And obviously he will now go and consult with the EU27, something Sylvia will cover uh, in the show as well. But in terms of what happens here in Parliament, well, John Burko does doesn't have to allow another meaningful vote today because, of course, we were supposed to have a meaningful vote on Saturday and nothing meaningfully has changed in the meantime. So whether that is allowed or not remains to be seen. But the plan B from the government and perhaps now the new plan A is to go ahead with the WAVE. It's not the WAB, it's the WAVE, which is the Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill. The second reading will almost certainly happen on Tuesday, tomorrow. And if the government, and they think they have got the numbers, as we heard from Dominic Raab over the weekend, if they've got the numbers to to start this parliamentary process as well, and then they will bring forward what's called a programme motion, which will try and accelerate the whole process to try and get it done within around about eight days. So from having the second reading uh, to getting royal assent in about eight days is absolutely extraordinary. But the Prime Minister will plough on and try and get that. So Tuesday's two key votes will be absolutely important, regardless if we get an MV today. And don't forget, because of what happened with the Letwin Amendment on Saturday, a meaningful vote is perhaps more meaningful less until we've seen the implementation of the wave.
Are you with me? Good, right, okay. Now, in the meantime, Sir Keir Starmer has been laying out uh, his objections. Of course, he is the Brexit spokesperson for the, the shadow government. In fact, he had a, a pretty impressive time uh, at the uh, dispatch box on Saturday, where he laid out his objections very categorically as well. So the two areas where Labour will perhaps try and concentrate to thwart the Prime Minister this week is one, trying to add an amendment to the WABE, the WAIB, the Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill, asking for a customs union to be attached, of course, because the customs union has been taken out. The second, and perhaps most unlikely to get through in terms of amendments which Labour will try to put on, uh, is uh, an, uh, uh, basically trying to get uh, a customs union and so a second reference put in there as well. And again, it doesn't look like they've got the numbers within Parliament, certainly with their own MPs, to get that as well. But what is interesting about the first part, the customs union, is guess who they're trying to get on board to back it? Yes, yes, the DUP, who are supposed to have a confidence and supply agreement with the Tories. It gets complicated. Steve, I just wanted to get into that a little bit further around a second referendum or a general election prospect because it feels as though Labour may frustrate that process by calling for a second referendum. The Scots, though, arguing for a general election, although some of the polling suggests that what the Scots really want is a second referendum as well. So what are the chances? What are the, so the routes to having another election or a second referendum either way, another vote by the people? <laughs> Um, second red referendum less likely and as we heard from Ian Blackford talking to me uh, on Friday uh, they deny that they're a one-trick pony that it's all about independence and that they want a second referendum in order to justify a second Scottish independence referendum but of course everyone knows that is ultimately what the SNP wants it's in the title isn't it Scottish National Party uh, Nationalist Party so the point being is uh, yes uh, that is, is fairly likely that that's what they're going to go for whether they're going to get it remains to be seen in terms of a general election yes there will be a general election. Now, under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, it's not due until 2022. But everybody knows this is a dysfunctional government. We do not have a working majority, as we've seen uh, with Mrs May's efforts and now Mr Boris Johnson's efforts to try and get his legislation through. In fact, he's been thwarted on many of his bills many, many times as well. In fact, we haven't even had, by, had, by the way, the vote on the Queen's speech, which historically uh, last got voted down, what do we say, 1924, uh, under a, a previous Tory government, which then led to a minority Conservative, a Labour government as well. So we haven't even had that vote, but that may be paused and pushed aside in order to get this Brexit legislation through as well. But in answer to your question, yes, there will be a general election. It is undoubtedly. The question is whether there is time to get a general election this year or whether Boris Johnson has to wait for the spring. Apparently, Jeremy Corbyn wants it and apparently his cohorts don't want it because at the moment, Jeremy Corbyn pretty unpopular in the polls. So in terms of what the Scots want, yes, of course, they want a second referendum. In terms of what the government wants, yes, it wants a general election because Boris Johnson wants a bigger mandate so he can go forth with his legislative programme, both in terms of Brexit and indeed domestically. Steve, thank you for setting out the various scenarios. Uh, sets the scene, doesn't it, for how we're trading some of those UK assets today. In the meantime, the EU is considering Britain's request for an extension. Several reports suggest Brussels will hold off on a decision until after UK lawmakers vote on the new deal. Let's get out to Sylvia for more from Brussels. Sylvia, the Europeans have plenty to do reading all those letters that Boris Johnson has been sending over the weekend. Some signed, some not. But just give us a sense, is there any chance that it could be the Europeans that trigger a hard Brexit? Well, as you mentioned before, the European Union is taking a very cautious approach at this stage. 
They're waiting for more developments in the House of Commons to understand how they should react to this request for an extension. The truth is that they have time. So they have until next week, until October 31st, to say yes to this extension. So there's, not, there's no hurry at this stage on the 27 uh, capital side to say yes or no to this request for an extension. In the meantime, Karen, let me show you some of the newspaper headlines here in Brussels. We have the newspaper, the Belgian newspaper, Le Soir, uh, with a front cover on Brexit saying, Brexit, the story without an end. Let me show you as well um, some French newspapers that I got here this morning. We have Les Echo, the economic newspaper. It's clearly Brexit is not their uh, main headline today. Um, there's a strike happening in France, but you can see here a small story about Brexit with the headline reading that Brexit is looking foggy after Boris Johnson's failure in Parliament. And then finally, let me show you as well Le Figaro, the French newspaper as well. Clearly, Brexit is also not its main story, but you'll find here a small headline about Brexit saying that Boris Johnson wants to impose a deal on the Brexit, on the UK Parliament, I should say. Now, speaking about France, given I've mentioned French newspapers, let's take a listen to the French President Emmanuel Macron. He was here last Friday and he said that he's not, he's not going to try and guess the result in the House of Commons. Let's take a listen. I don't do political fiction. I'm not going to extrapolate if the British Parliament votes this way or that way. But I don't think that any new extension should be granted. I think that now we must end these negotiations, move to the negotiations of our future relationship and end all of this. So when it comes to that extension, the European Union is really just waiting for more developments in London. But there's another aspect that we should be looking at, and that's what the European Parliament will say about this deal. Let's not forget that uh, the Boris deal, the second exit agreement that Boris Johnson negotiated with the EU, needs to be approved in the House of Commons, but also in the European Parliament. And I spoke to different officials um, uh, over the weekend working for the European Parliament, and they told me that technically Technically speaking, the European Parliament could say yes to the deal already this week, but they're not going to do it before the vote in the House of Commons and before the UK Parliament clearly states how it feels about this exit agreement. But as we've, we've been here before, Karen, clearly the key to unlock further progress in the Brexit process is still in London. That's right. Uh, sounds like the message from the Europeans is uh, the ball is still firmly in your court to UK lawmakers. Sylvia, thank you very much for that. Irish Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue told CNBC at the IMF meeting in Washington that the agreed Brexit deal gives Northern Ireland the opportunity to determine its relationship with both the EU and the UK. The Irish government uh, and successive Irish governments through the Good Friday Agreement right up to this point have always been deeply aware of the very strong views of all traditions in Northern Ireland. And we do believe the progress that has been made in this agreement where we are creating the political space to allow the institutions of Northern Ireland themselves to have their voice heard in the future relationship between Northern Ireland and the European Union and the United Kingdom is a really important moment. It's a very important economic relationship uh, between Ireland and the United Kingdom. Do you see a pathway, assuming that this deal does prove to be acceptable to both the European Parliament and the UK Parliament, do you see a pathway that protects that 
economic relationship and allows it to grow and thrive going forward. And what does that look like to you? Uh, yes, I do see a path, but it would also be appropriate to acknowledge that no such path in the future from an economic point of view will be the same as the one we've had in the past when both countries were inside the European Union. But Ireland has always made very clear that we fundamentally respect the decision of the British people to leave the European Union. In terms of what that past looks like, I think it's got two elements. The first element to it is the nature of the relationship that the United Kingdom and the European Union eventually negotiate, uh, which uh, both sides will look to move on once we're clear where we stand with the current agreement. And the second one then will be the efforts that the United Kingdom and the Irish government will make to continue to ensure that the deep friendship between both governments is protected and maintained in the future. That really matters to both of us. Uh, I have excellent relationships with my counterpart in the British government, the Chancellor uh, Sajid Javid, and I'm deeply committed to building on that relationship and ensuring that even when we go on our different journeys with respect to Europe, we continue to have a, a good relationship with the United Kingdom, and I'm confident we'll be able to do that. All right. Well, let's bring in Elias Haddad, senior currency strategist from Commonwealth Bank. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. So taking a look at the sterling price action we've seen in the wake of uh, Saturday's events in Parliament, sterling has come off now about 0.5 percent in the latest session, but still holding strong above mm -hmm. that 129 mark, suggesting that the investment community remains pretty confident that a disorderly Brexit can be avoided. Is that the right take here? That's right. That's right. And that's in, in fact, that's our, our base case scenarios that regardless of what happens in terms of a vote in the House of Commons this week, whether the deal, Johnson's deal is approved or not, uh, the pound will continue to trade firmly. If the deal is refused, uh, then the next, the next logical step is to have a general election. And th that's when the fun start because you look at the platform of a lot of the political parties and none of them are obviously get, aside from the Brexit party, none of, the, none of their Brexit platform are for a hard Brexit. Uh, the Conservative will probably campaign on whatever uh, on Johnson's deal that he that he got with the EU. Uh, the, li the, the Liberal Democrats will campaign on revoking Article 50 if they if they manage to have a majority. And then the Labour uh, Labour Party will campaign on their, uh, their their vote to renegotiate another agreement and then call for a referendum uh, next summer. Uh, so that's why we think that the the, the, the pound at least against the U.S. dollar, will continue to trade firmly around 128, even if the deal is rejected. Now, obviously, if the deal is accepted by the parliament without any of those uh, amendments, such as a referendum, for instance, well, we could see the pound and, and against the dollar rally towards 135. Now, a lot of uh, what you could argue that a lot of what has kept the pound down is the uncertainty that's mm. come with Brexit. And as Steve just outlined in terms of the possible scenarios for a general election, we could be looking at a general election before the new year, but we could also be looking at a general election in the spring of 2020. So even if we enter that second scenario, mm. do you still have confidence that the pound can remain at least around the 128 mark? Yes, because I, at this stage, the, the, the other interesting part is that um, it, we'll have the Bank of England maintaining their uh, gradual but limited tightening bias. And that's pretty important in terms of support for the pound, especially compared when other central banks uh, have moved to either an easing bias or, or just uh, turning on the monetary policy tap. Uh, and at this stage, it looks as though uh, if, if the Bank of England's assumption for an orderly Brexit uh, remains uh, as is, then that means that their uh, gradual and limited tightening bias 
uh, will also remain the base case scenario. And that will be an important support for the pound, despite the uncertainty generated from uh, early general elections. The pound was incredibly responsive to the news flow last week, uh, just telling us how short some investors had been a coiled spring. As soon as you got some good news, it was rocketed to the upside. What does that mean in terms of some of those short positions now being flushed out of the market in case there is disappointment? What is the chance that we could fall even lower than we might have in the past? Oh, I think that, well, the big risk, obviously, if, it, if the EU rejects uh, Boris Johnson's uh, letter agree, uh, asking for an extension, that's, that's a big risk and we could see the pound fall back towards the, the low 120s. But I think that's a, a fairly low risk. I don't see why the EU would refuse uh, the uh, UK's uh, demand for a three-month extension. Uh, but it's it's certainly something that you got to keep on your radar screen. Positioning absolutely. has been altered. And the positioning, I think, yeah, the, the, the net short position on, on, on cable have been significantly trimmed. Uh, but it's still it's still net short uh, generally, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Elias Haddad, with us, a senior currency strategist at Commonwealth Bank. Uh, we're going to squeeze a quick break here coming up on the show. Protests in Lebanon rage as anger against the country's government grows over its handling of the economy. Details from Beirut after the break. And taking a look at Asian markets, where we stand in the overnight trade. A bit of a mixed picture there. You can see the Nikkei 225 up about 0.27%. Uh, but uh, the Shanghai Composite Mainland Chinese Index is trading in negative territory. We'll be right back. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. have clashed violently with anti-government protesters in Hong Kong as the unrest stretches into its 20th week. Authorities used tear gas and water cannons as tens of thousands took to the streets in defiance of a ban on assembly. Demonstrators threw petrol bombs, lit fires and vandalised Chinese-linked businesses and subway stations. Meanwhile, uh, hundreds of protesters in Barcelona threw bags of rubbish at a Spanish government building as a week of demonstrations against Spain's Supreme Court decision rolled on. The court sentenced pro-independence Catalan leaders to as much as 13 years in prison for their roles in a failed referendum in 2017. The verdict and sentencing comes ahead of a key general election in Spain next month. And now to Italy, thousands of supporters of Matteo Salvini's right-wing Lega party gathered in central Rome to protest against the country's new government. The rally comes after Salvini's failed bid to trigger elections earlier this year, leading to a collapse of a coalition government between Lega and the anti-establishment Five Star Movement. And hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets of Lebanon over the weekend to take part in anti-government protests. In one of the country's biggest demonstrations in decades, protesters are taking a stand against poor living standards and alleged corruption among the ruling elite. Now, Hadley joins us with more from Beirut. Hadley, uh, I understand that the government could be putting together a reform package to try to address some of the concerns and grievances of the protesters. What's on the table? here and are we looking at a solution to what the protesters are demanding? 
That's right, Juliana. So essentially what we've seen here, four days of massive protests across the country, hundreds of thousands of people across sectarian and party lines coming out to basically say to the government, uh, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. And all of that, of course, laid at the door of the country's prime minister, Saad Hariri, as you mentioned. He's expected to lay out some economic reforms to his cabinet later today. A couple of things within that reform package, $3.3 billion that they're looking for from the banks and from the central bank as well in this country. And in effort to get to a zero deficit. This is a country, of course, that has one of the highest debt to GDP ratios in the world between 150 and 151 of GDP. Also, of course, he's asking MPs, members of parliament, current and former presidents to take a haircut to their salaries and their pensions by as much as 50 percent. But that does beg the question, how much is that really when it comes down to this is a country that exists with systemic corruption. It's done so for a long, long time now. And folks coming out over the last several days saying enough is enough. Several weeks ago, we had the chance to catch up in an exclusive interview with Mr. Herrera. We asked him about the corruption, but we also asked him about the series of economic reforms he was talking about at that time when he said that this was a country in economic crisis. Listen in to what he had to say. I truly believe that everyone is conscious that there is a problem. Everyone wants to take action. The issue is how to combine all our efforts in, you know, one big package of reform that will cover all the things that we need to do. It's going to be tough, okay, but it's worth the, you know, it's worth the hours and it's worth the tiredness that we're going to go through and it's worth the risk because we will have demonstrations in Lebanon and I'm saying it from now, but let's have it one time. And that's it. What is the haircut? Well, in the history of political miscalculations, that might go down in as one of the biggest. Essentially, he was saying there that, yes, we'll have a protest, but then everybody will get back uh, to business as usual. That doesn't seem to be what we're seeing here in Lebanon, uh, particularly over the last couple of days. As I mentioned, those hundreds of thousands of protesters, not just here in Beirut, but across the country. I just want to give you a sense of where we're we are today. We're broadcasting to you from an area known as Marta's Square. This was where the demarcation line straight down the middle between East and West Beirut uh, was during the Civil War. This is also, of course, uh, one of the areas that was essentially a part of the birthplace of Arab nationalism uh, across the region. So a lot of historical context here and the fact that people have yet to go inside, that they've yet to put down uh, their uh, placards and their flags, in spite of the fact that the prime minister said he's going to do something about this problem really does speak to the level of disdain that people across all parties and sectarian divides have at the, this point for the government. They say this is a government that hasn't done enough uh, to stem corruption, that they haven't done enough uh, to really get the country economically back on track. You remember, of course, that their long-serving central bank governor, Riyadh Saleme, he's the longest-serving central bank governor in the world, has been using some pretty creative means of monetary policy over the last several years uh, to find ways to essentially pay off this country's debt. A lot of people now really speaking out and saying this has got to stop. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.